Hello, Great Minds! It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Minds in History, as we get ready to dive into the life and legacy of arguably America's greatest president. But we will save that debate for the end of the month on Shots Heard Around the World. For now, it's time for Great Number 12, Honest Abe Lincoln. So welcome to the show, everyone. This is certainly a special month to be covering Abraham Lincoln, as his life will in fact come to an end just three days after this episode airs, on April 15th. Abraham Lincoln is often venerated as America's greatest president. He stands alone, a flawless individual. None can compare to the great deeds he accomplished. Bullshit. Everyone is flawed, everyone had failings, and as always, no great mind is safe from the piece of shit curve. Don't get me wrong, Lincoln is great. One historian called Lincoln, quote, the mind that was and could have been. After researching Abe, I think that that is just about as perfect a quote as any to describe our rail-splitting emancipator. I will tell you what I think, but as always, in the end, it will be up to you to decide whether or not Abe was honestly as great as everyone makes him out to be, or if he, like so many others, will fall short of absolute greatness. But first, it's some history for you, a reason to drink for me, it's the history of the great minds that made history come to be. Before we dive into Lincoln's life, we better talk drinks. Today, I am enjoying a glass of Knob Creek straight bourbon whiskey that is tied directly to Honest Abe's backstory, as his father actually worked in a distillery around Knob Creek, Kentucky. The bourbon itself is actually named for the stream that flowed through, I guess flows through, Lincoln's childhood hometown. This is also one of the neighbor's favorite bourbons, and I have to say that I am really enjoying it too. But we'll save the rating for later in the show. And I am also killing a Corona Light, as it is National Beer Day on April 7th, the day I am recording this episode. It just seemed like the right thing to do. Since we brought up Abe Lincoln's father, we might as well dig into the rail splitter's background a little bit. Born February 12th, 1809, Lincoln was born into the world of Jefferson, an age of growing interest in the West, which was at this point Illinois and the American Midwest, and an America on the verge of war with Great Britain. More specifically, he was born into poverty, living in a small log cabin in the Kentucky frontier. After some failed business ventures, Thomas Lincoln was forced to uproot and move his family to Indiana in 1816, just a year after the War of 1812 came to a close. Abe's mother, Nancy Hanks Lincoln, would die in 1818, when our little Lincoln was just nine years old. Abe's 11-year-old sister, Sarah, would act as family caregiver, and she was very much cherished by our future precedent. Her premature death during childbirth in 1828 certainly left the young Lincoln devastated. Abe's father would remarry in 1819, and Abe grew quite close to his stepmother, Sarah Bush Johnston, whom he often referred to as mother. In the end, she would outlive Abe by four years. However, the void of a steady maternal figure was in no way, shape, or form filled by his fucking ass of a father. Thomas was illiterate, often of declining health, and relied on Abe to work the family land. 
Historian Michael Burlingame has classified young Abe's relationship rather drastically in his book The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln, saying, quote, His father treated him like a slave. In a chapter titled, quote, I Used to Be a Slave, a play on Abe's own words, he calls their relationship, quote, chilly. He continues, Thomas Lincoln scarcely tolerated his boy's obsession with learning. To discourage the reading habit, Thomas used to conceal Abraham's books and sometimes even threw them away. Thomas himself once said, if Abe don't fool away all his time on his books, he may make something yet. Thomas never saw the value in education that his son did and once remarked to a friend, quote, I suppose that Abe is still fooling himself. Mm. I, this is a hard one to read. I suppose that Abe is still full in himself with education. I tried to stop it, but he has got that full idea in his head, and it can't get out. Now, I hain't got no education, but I get along far better than if I had. Yeah, Thomas Lincoln got along all right by essentially selling his son into labor for his neighbors as a sort of indenture. Things were so bad that Abe actually turned to neighbors like William Wood to, as Burlingame puts it, quote, flee the quasi-slavery he endured at the hands of his father. He eventually escaped the family estate to New Salem. Naturally, Lincoln and his father did not stay in touch. Lincoln would not attend his father's funeral, nor travel the relatively short distance to say farewell, as his father wished, in his last dying days in 1851. But Abe did get that education. Burlingame notes, quote, Lincoln ascribed to his own positive traits, his power of analysis, his logic, his mental activity, and his ambition. In terms of learning, Abe certainly didn't get what we would consider a formal education. Getting educated, quote, by littles, he tended to get a month of schooling here and there for an odd week or month at most, which likely never amounted to more than a year of schooling. He spent his free time, as I mentioned, with his books and practiced speechcraft by standing on a stump. One educator, Chip Denton, however, remarked, quote, Don't let there be any doubt that Lincoln acquired the tools of learning that would serve him and his country well throughout his life. In fact, it is most instructive to reflect on Lincoln's learning not as an aberration, but as an exemplar of good education. All the elements of classical education are there. Grammar, or learning of language and the acquisition of knowledge. Logic, or learning to think critically. And rhetoric, or learning to express oneself eloquently or persuasively. I can't say that I totally disagree, at least in the sense that these skills, his education, served him well. Lincoln would also serve in the Black Hawk War in 1832, but he saw no real action. He did, however, serve briefly in a spy ring. After that, he began a career as a lawyer, being admitted to the Illinois Bar in 1836. It was around this time that Lincoln also began his surprisingly long, albeit detached, political career. Lincoln was what's called an old-line Whig of Henry Clay's world. He served as a member of the Illinois State House of Representatives beginning in 1834 for nearly a decade. It was at this time that he argued to expand male suffrage to all white males and began opposing the expansion of slavery, if not just for free soiler motives. He even once wrote a protest against slavery in 1837 saying, quote, The institution of slavery is founded on both injustice and bad policy. After a five-year hiatus from politics, Abe returned to the game, this time on the national level, serving for two years in the U.S. House of Representatives, during which time he opposed the Mexican-American War, saying Polk's vision of annexation and expansion was, quote, attractive rainbow that rises in showers of blood. 
His short-lived political career in Washington meant a return to prairie life and law in Illinois, during which time he would stand before the Illinois Supreme Court for 175 cases, even defending the Illinois Central Railroad Company and gaining the moniker Honest Abe. He defended men accused of murder, once squared off against Jefferson Davis himself in the courtroom, represented a slave owner, a case he lost, and even represented an African-American woman who was resisting being sold. I should probably mention that around this time, Lincoln was engaged to Anne Rutledge, but she died in 1835. By 1839, he had met Mary Todd. The two would marry and have four children, only one of which lived to maturity, Robert Todd Lincoln. One of his sons, William Lincoln, actually died in the White House. The deaths of his children left Lincoln to suffer from, quote, melancholy, something I'm sure Dr. Sherry Valencic will expand upon for me next week on A Twist of Psych. But today, this is called clinical depression. Unsurprisingly, Mary Todd would suffer even more, eventually also losing her husband. In 1875, her only surviving child, Robert, had her committed to an asylum. We will dive deeper into this again, I'm sure, on a twist of psych. Moving back to Lincoln, let's get to the points of his life that actually make him great. One of Lincoln's greatest attributes was his mastery of rhetoric. Like Churchill in the Second World War, Lincoln would use his mastery of words to achieve greatness. As early as the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858, he demonstrated his masterful speechcraft. It was during these debates that Lincoln began to question slavery even more, this time on the national scene, instigating his rise to fame among Republicans, the party he would later come to lead. These debates are fascinating, really crucial to his rise to power within his own party, and eventually his nation, but I'm not going to spend too much time discussing them here, as he lost the senatorial election to Stephen Douglas. But this would not be the final showdown between the two rivals from Illinois, so let's go get Abe elected. I think we can all relate to the tumult, anger, and chaos that is brought about by presidential elections in the United States. I feel like we're sort of a joke, becoming a worldwide soap opera for a few months around November. But never did an election breed more chaos than in 1860, as sectional divisions that had driven the nation since the days of Andrew Jackson seemed to tear apart the nation once again. Four candidates emerged in the presidential election of 1860. Northern Democrat and Lincoln's old rival Stephen Douglas was the early frontrunner, but lost steam as Southern Democrats desired to break away with their own candidate John C. Breckinridge. Republicans certainly sought to capitalize on the divided Democrats, and Lincoln emerged as their candidate. Somewhat pitifully, John Bell of Tennessee also emerged as a pro-Union constitutionalist. To clarify, he advocated for preserving the Constitution that had always allowed for slavery. Effectively, two campaigns and two elections unfolded one in the North and one in the South. In the end, Douglas lost miserably, and Bell carried only his native Tennessee alongside Virginia and Kentucky. Breckinridge carried the rest of the South, and Lincoln, who never campaigned a day in the Southern states, carried the whole of the North. But get ready for some simple math and logic here. The North had the population, the voters, and the electoral votes to carry the election without the South at all. I can't help but wonder, did Lincoln's failure to campaign in the South further divide the nation? Probably. I can't really say but I honestly believe that it wouldn't have hurt to try. The election of 1860 is a fascinating case study, but for me it's better as a visual study, and I'm sure I will be posting lots of cartoons, diagrams, and maps on the DGMH Facebook page. Be sure to go check that out. In the months following his election, Abe faced a crisis unlike any other, but it wasn't really his to face, at least not yet. 
James Buchanan was still president. This guy fucking sucks. Within a few months, seven states, starting with South Carolina, seceded from the Union. The shit had hit the fucking fan. To sum that colossal dumpster fire up, Foner notes, President Buchanan seemed paralyzed. He denied that a state could secede, but he also insisted that the federal government had no right to use force against itself. Lincoln's failure to address secession in those early days after the election wasn't the best move either. Sitting President James Buchanan could and did do very little to stop the chaos from unfolding. But Lincoln didn't exactly assuage Southern fears either. And as Lincoln would eventually say, the war came. I think that one thing I've made extremely clear in the progression and evolution of this show is my hatred of military history. It just isn't my thing. It might be yours, I'm cool with that, but man do I find it fucking boring. Right flanks, silly charges, exaggerated acts of heroism, for me I say meh, but I can't avoid at least discussing the American Civil War and at the very least provide you with a brief overview, as it is necessary to truly explore Lincoln. This will piss someone off. I know that. I will be oversimplifying a lot of information. Someone, I'm sure, will bitterly call me out for getting some minute detail wrong. Who gives a shit? This is what you get. So the Civil War. What started it? Fucking slavery. That's what. Don't even tell me states' rights or economics. You're not Charles Beard or Lewis Hacker, and I don't really care. I mean, sure, economics were a factor. How the fuck could Southern elites make money if they didn't have their peculiar institution of slavery to labor for them? And I won't sit here and quote the dozens of newspaper articles or state constitutions that have been quoted in every Civil War video and podcast already. When it came down to it, states' rights were really just about slavery. I mean, I get the Jeffersonian mentality of the small agrarian farm, the autonomous state that resisted the encroaching oversight of a strong federal government, the fear of despotism and tyranny that still lingered on from the revolution that had once hindered the freedoms of the American populace, but not here. Some southern states even argued that northern states had too strong a sense of states' rights when they tried to limit or prohibit southerners from bringing their slaves with them when they traveled to the north. When it comes down to it, you just simply have to ask yourself, what right were states trying to safeguard? What institution did they feel they had to defend? The answer, fucking slavery. I will quote one piece, the Constitution of the Confederate States of America. Right there, in Article 4, buried in the minutiae of the political document itself, is the answer, quote, Slavery, as it now exists in the Confederate States, shall be recognized and protected by Congress and by the territorial government. The U.S. Constitution is the cornerstone of the United States. I think we can all agree on that. It is a guide for future generations on how the nation can and should function. It is a way to safeguard certain ideas and principles far past the lives of those that created the document itself. So when things get put in the Constitution, or any Constitution for that matter, they tend to be pretty fucking important to said country. Here, we have seen that slavery was very important to the CSA. One debate I never desire to have is this one. To me, it has always been clear as day. The American Civil War was primarily instigated by slavery. Everything else was secondary or irrelevant. And don't even try to tell me that Lincoln was some evil tyrant that trampled all over American fucking liberties. It's just not true. Continuing with the Civil War, let's talk about the sides. Union versus Confederacy, North versus South. The war didn't start with the end goal of ending slavery in Lincoln's great mind. Instead, he focused on re-establishing the Union, the USA. We will get there, but it just didn't start that way. 
In terms of early leadership, the Army of the Potomac was under the direction of General George McClellan, a quote, brilliant organizer who succeeded in welding his men into a superb fighting force, but seemed reluctant to commit them to battle. He hoped that compromise might end the war without large-scale loss of life. And the South was under the direction of Robert E. Lee, who was a quote, brilliant battlefield tactician. When it comes to teaching, learning, and ex exploring U.S. history, especially the Civil War, I trust few as much as I do Eric Foner, so that will be my primary reference. Of course, in this big story, we can't forget the border states. Those middle states that Lincoln allowed to keep slavery so long as they maintained loyalty to the Union. Kentucky, Missouri, Delaware, Maryland, and the newly formed state carved out of the northern counties of Virginia. Country road, take me fucking home, here I am talking about West Virginia. These states lingered somewhere in the middle, slightly on the fence about things, a little lost, but unwilling to dedicate themselves to the southern cause. They didn't want to be the center of all the fighting, which makes sense. They would have been had they joined the Confederacy. They didn't necessarily want to leave the Union, but they weren't really keen on giving up their slaves either. And I should probably take a second to talk about the fucking CSA. That is, the Confederate States of America. Honestly, this is a little hard to do these days without getting political. So we're going to look at this from a somewhat unique approach by addressing the key debate, treason. Let's put it simply, treason is a word. No fucking shit, Mr. DGMH. Yes, it is a word that can, like all words, be defined in many ways. For example, treason can be defined as the action of betraying someone or something. More specifically, it is often defined as, quote, the crime of betraying one's country, especially by attempting to kill the sovereign or overthrow the government. A tricky word indeed. Guy Fawkes, traitor that literally tried to kill his king, branded a folk hero. Benedict Arnold, hero that was literally America's best or second best general, branded a traitor forevermore. Caesar was executed for the sake of the Republic, but his executioners were betraying the Empire. I don't fucking know. Is a duck a fucking duck? If the shoe fits, should you fucking wear it? So if you're wondering if I'm saying the Confederates were ducks, oh my fucking god. I'm not. They were all fucking traitors. There I said it. It is that simple. For me, yes. For you, maybe not. I don't see disagreeing with someone about history, words, etc. as a reason to hate them for all eternity. And hell, I love Benedict Arnold, but you don't really see a lot of Arnold statues in the United States, do you? Well yeah, actually, just one, really, and it's of his boot. So back to the War of Treasonous Southern States, or the War of Northern Aggression. Whatever fucking perspective you choose, let's look at the Civil War. Eric Foner says, quote, The American Civil War is often called the First Modern War. Never before had mass armies confronted each other on the battlefield with the deadly weapons created by the Industrial Revolution. The resulting casualties dwarfed anything in American experience. That's fucking true. More Americans would die in the Civil War than all other American wars combined. But what do you want me to do? Go through the whole damned war like hell. So here we go. A super short, super sweet, slightly drunk, and super snarky overview of the American Civil War from a guy who really doesn't get the hype. Oh, I need a drink. Here we go. Fort Sumter, a federal fort in Charleston, is fired on in 61. And although it is so much more complicated than this, the Civil War has begun. It's gonna be quick, says everyone. Like hell, says Stonewall Jackson. Bam. Bull Run. Well, shit, says the North. Bam. Second Battle of Bull Run. Well, fuck, says the North. Up next, a bad case of the slows. But Antietam does slow down Lee. McClellan is fired for failing to pursue. Lincoln changes the game. Grant takes a nap. Grant beats the shit out of the West. It's a damned Yankee trick. Oh, fuck, 
Stonewall Jackson's dead, and his own men killed him. Lee loses at Gettysburg, Great Town got super fucked up there once, Grant takes Vicksburg like the next fucking day, happy 4th of July everyone, four score and seven years ago, a bunch of DGMH grapevines did some crazy shit. Grant, who says fuck all when it comes to human life, is now in charge, he leaves Sherman, who, who also really doesn't give a shit about human life, in charge of the West. Holy shit, Virginia is invaded, Sherman marches to the sea, burns the fucking south to the ground, liberates thousands of slaves, says something about 40 acres and a mule, and then Sherman goes and takes Savannah and heads north. Lee finally sees the writing on the wall and surrenders at Appomattox Courthouse April 9th, 1865, and our story is just about at a close, plus like hundreds of tiny little battles sprinkled throughout. Love me for it, hate me for it, that's what you're getting from me. But let's dissect a couple of points that really make Lincoln look, oh you know, great. Foner captures the changing nature of the war in Marcus Spiegel's story. Spiegel, an American Jew, was part of a population that represented less than 1% of the nation's population in 1861. He fought for American patriotism. In his own words, he was defending the flag that was ever ready to protect you and me and everyone who sought its protection from oppression. His glorious cause was that of freedom. But what did that mean? Foner notes, quote, the magic word freedom shaped how many Union soldiers understood the conflict. But as the war progressed, pre-war understandings of liberty gave way to something new. Spiegel himself was not an abolitionist. He shared in many of the same racial views and prejudices as his fellow brothers of the day and Lincoln himself. He even saw Abe's shift towards abolition as a mistake. That is, of course, until he entered the South. As the Union Army advanced, Spiegel witnessed the true nature of the South's peculiar institution. Writing to his wife from Louisiana in 1864, he said, quote, I have learned and seen the horrors of slavery. Never hereafter will I either speak or vote in favor of slavery. His changing views reflected those of the nations. Sadly, Marcus Spiegel's fight to end this horrific institution would come to an end just months after writing this letter to his wife, when he was killed in battle. This fascinating perspective is eye-opening, but what changed the war? And how did Lincoln himself change the course of the war? The answer can be found in presidential power. And it is truly something that makes Abraham Lincoln uniquely great. So in 1863, Abe Lincoln pretty much said fuck all and changed the entire course of the war. It was a decision he had grappled with since the early days of his presidency, and it was exactly what Southerners feared he would do. He finally freed the slaves. Well, sort of. You see, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation freed all slaves in territory and open rebellion against the United States. The policy went into effect on January 1st, 1863, bolstered by the chaos of Antietam. This was actually clever, as Abe didn't want to isolate those precious border states, so he went ahead and freed all slaves in a separate country, an area that he had just about as much say in as he did Brazil or France. However, historian James R. McPherson notes the old cliché that the proclamation did not free a single slave because it applied only to the Confederate states where Lincoln had no power completely misses the point. He continues, the proclamation announced a revolutionary new war aim, the overthrow of slavery by force of arms if and when the Union armies conquered the South. However, McPherson says despite grumbling and dissent by some soldiers who said they had enlisted to fight for the Union rather than the N-word that I'm not going to say, most soldiers understood and accepted the new policy. Much like it did for Spiegel, the Emancipation Proclamation changed the game, the cause, the entire nature of the war. 
The Union, in the world's eye, had taken the moral high ground. No amount of cotton could lure Britain or France into a war to fight for the enslavement of African Americans when some other part was openly fighting against it. That would be terribly hypocritical, which isn't very British or French at all. Historian-era Berlin notes the beginning of the Civil War marked the beginning of the end of slavery in the American South. But unlike McPherson, Berlin argues that, quote, despite vigorous dissent from northern abolitionists, most white people north and south saw no reason to involve slaves in their war. He continues, the war provided the occasion for slaves to seize freedom over the course of the war. The slaves' insistence that their own enslavement was the root of the conflict only strengthened their friends and weakened their enemies. The full weight of Lincoln's proclamation would be seen as Sherman marched from southern state to southern fucking state, burning everything he could, including the peculiar institution of slavery, to the ground. Lincoln's new vision for America would be finalized in the ratification of the 13th Amendment. After making the order, the Emancipation Proclamation, he proclaimed, I never in my life felt more certain that I was doing right than I do in signing this paper. If my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act, and my whole soul is in it. But Lincoln wasn't the sole champion of liberty and freedom, nor was he necessarily a protector of freedom outright, as can be seen by his drastic wartime limitations on habeas corpus. Lincoln gave the order on April 27, 1861 to suspend the writ of habeas corpus if an insurrection against the laws of the United States took place. This, however, is neither surprising nor necessarily a bad thing. Washington and others would do this and worse in wartime. After all, loose lips sink ships. Habeas corpus is basically the right of a person arrested to be justly accused of the crime for which they are being detained. That is to say, a writ of habeas corpus, quote, protects the citizens from illegal detention. Lincoln's decisions would cost him support in many arenas, including the Supreme Court of the United States. Chief Justice Taney even warned Lincoln that he was, quote, on the road to becoming a military dictator. Historian Ronald White notes, quote, The writ of habeas corpus came to symbolize America's commitment to individual freedom. While Lincoln believed that secession went against the Constitution, many argued that arbitrary arrest did as well. Lincoln may have defied popular opinion, but he wasn't necessarily in the wrong here, at least constitutionally. Article 1, Section 9 of the U.S. Constitution states that habeas corpus, quote, shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. The court may have disagreed with Lincoln, but this humble podcaster can see the constitutional basis for Lincoln's actions. The country was facing open rebellion. It was under threat of invasion, making this an only mild hypocrisy at best. Well, now I need a short break from Abe to really think about the good and the bad-ish here. Let's move to this episode's moment in the margins. So this was a hard one. I mean, I had a lot of good choices here. Mary Todd turned out to be fascinating, but not quite marginalized. Neither was my other choice, Dorothea Dix, who was also a great option. She was superintendent of nursing during the Civil War and would go on to lead prison and asylum reform, but I figured we would save all that for a twist of psych. But Clara Barton is a good one for sure. A nurse like Dix, she... 
<laughs> a nurse likes dicks. Oh my god. A nurse like Dorothea Dix, she pioneered treatment of soldiers in the Union Army and women's role in war during the course of the Civil War itself, and went on to help create the American Red Cross. She was a teacher, she worked with Susan B. Anthony in association with the women's suffrage movement, and she was even a civil rights activist working alongside Great for Another Day, Frederick Douglass. And this was cool, she even helped prepare military hospitals in 1870 during the early years of the Franco-Prussian War, which we have talked about on the show several times. But everyone knows Clara Barton. I mean, she's awesome, she's a little marginalized, but for Lincoln, for the one-year anniversary of DGMH, I wanted something more. And then I found her. Mary Elizabeth Bowser. My fucking goddess. So who is Mary Elizabeth Bowser? Well, that's a bit of a mystery. Born into slavery on a Virginia plantation sometime between 1839 and 1841, Bowser's life is hard to figure out. And in fact, isn't even Bowser's. Her name was actually probably Mary Jane Richards. She was baptized by the Van Loo family in 1846, but by the time of this event was actually a free person. The plantation owner, John Van Loo, died, and his eldest daughter, Elizabeth, was able to convince the family to free all the slaves. Well, sort of. You see, Van Loo didn't actually have the power to free slaves in Virginia at the time, but she just kind of did it anyway, in a de facto not de jour kind of way. This didn't stop her from sending Mary Richards to school in the North. By 1855, Van Loo had offered Richards the opportunity to move to Liberia, but she was truly unhappy there and as a result, returned to Virginia just five years later. A year later, in 1861, she married Wilson Bowser, a servant on the Van Loo estate, just days before the secession crisis unfolded. It was during the Civil War that her story would take an interesting turn, as Elizabeth Van Loo would organize and operate a female spy ring out of her Richmond home. Providing valuable information to Union generals like Benjamin Butler, George Sharp, and even Ulysses S. Grant, the Van Loo household became a cited and valued source of information from the Confederate capital. During the early stages of the war, Mary Bowser made a point of tending to captured Union soldiers alongside Van Loo. But great opportunities to aid in the cause against the peculiar institution to which she was born prompted her to take on a very different role in the war, as part of the so-called Richmond Spy Ring, run by Crazy Bet Van Loo. During the war, Mary Bowser would actually find herself situated in a very unique position to provide Van Loo with incredible and extremely valuable information from the Confederate White House itself. That's right, Mary Bowser, at least on one documented occasion, provided information on the Confederacy from within the household of Jefferson Davis. Van Loo is quoted to have said, When I open my eyes in the morning, I say to the servant, What news, Mary? And my caterer never fails. Van Loo later said, Most generally, our reliable news is gathered from blacks. There's no proof as to whether or not Mary Bowser herself provided any information that helped turn the tide of the war in a way that James Armistead Lafayette did in the Revolution, but it is possible. Mary was a little hard to figure out, as she seemed to be quite good at changing and concealing aspects of her life, including after the war. Nonetheless, the Richmond spy ring under the leadership of Elizabeth Van Loo was certainly a wealthy source of information for Union generals, and I have little doubt that Mary Bowser was a crucial part of that success. But the war's end is where details on Bowser's contributions get a little hazy. 
Dan Liu was given awards and payments for her services, but in order to protect those blacks that served on behalf of the Union from angry former Confederates, people like Mary were kept in secret, and as a result, quickly forgotten. Mary Bowser definitely went on to teach freedmen in the Reconstruction era, and of course was eventually freed from slavery by the Emancipation Proclamation after Virginia's fall. It is believed that she operated as a powerful speaker under the guise Richmonia Richards, speaking regularly about her life. She eventually went on to meet Harriet Beecher Stowe, and then she seemed to fade into obscurity. But did she get any credit for her service? Actually, yes. She would find herself in the U.S. Intelligence Hall of Fame, and was actually captured in several embellished stories that are rooted in Bette Van Loo's niece's account of her role in the war. However, this account is based on reflections and recollections of someone who was only 10 years old at the end of the Civil War. It is likely that Van Loo told her niece of Mary Bowser's heroism, and that she maybe encountered Bowser herself. But many of the stories in the account, like Bowser's photographic memory, have been either proven false, proven exaggerated, or proven to belong to someone else. There's actually a great Atlantic article out there about how mistakenly identified photos fooled NPR, Wikipedia, and libraries across the country. In that same article, historian Louise Levine beautifully notes the reality of Bowser's life story, saying, quote, Bowser's story evidences the wonderful truth that Americans of all backgrounds contributed to our history. But the enormous holes in what we have of her biography remind us that gender, race, and class also shaped how millions of Americans went unrecorded in what we rely on as the historical record, because they were restricted from holding property, voting, leaving wills, or even being accurately recorded in censuses. One author noted quite accurately that, quote, Mary Richards Bowser remains a fascinating yet frustratingly obscured figure in American history. Ultimately, the lessons she offers us may be more about the limitations of history and the powers of invention. Either way, Mary Bowser's story is one hell of a tale, and yet again reveals, as Ira Berlin evidenced, the role of black Americans in Union success in the American Civil War. Well, let's move back to Lincoln. I figured we would take a special quick look at his most famous speech that was really never meant to be, the Gettysburg Address. Sometime after the July victory, after three long days of fighting at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, Lincoln participated in a dedication of the lives lost at the war's bloodiest battle. At the cemetery, Lincoln was not the main speaker, nor did he intend for many to note what he said that day, but they fucking did. Trying something new here, and because this episode is getting way too long, let's take a pivot to the first Patreon bonus exclusive of a main DGMH episode. And these little treasures will be available to all Patreon supporters from the $1 level and up. So it's your lucky day. Go and support the show and get my thoughts on my favorite of all of Honest Abe's speeches, specifically here the Gettysburg Address and his second inaugural address. Just follow the link in the show notes, support the show, and get access to this and all sorts of other great bonus episodes and cuts. Now, as we wrap this up, and as I have spent the last, oh, I don't know, 10 minutes talking about my personal opinions on a couple of Lincoln's greatest speeches, I figured I would spend a second highlighting what I think is the most important battle of the American Civil War. Interestingly, my opinion on this also captures one of Lincoln's greatest battles. 
Here I am talking about the battle for the presidency in 1864, when Abraham Lincoln's former general, George McClellan, returns to run as the, quote, peace candidate. Basically, he says, let's end the war now. What most people don't think about is that Lincoln had to run for re-election in 1864 in the middle of a civil war. Most of the, quote, running would have happened over the long year of 1863, when things were not going so great for Abe Lincoln. Not only that, emancipation was met with mixed emotions at first. According to Eric Foner, quote, Lincoln for a time believed he would be unable to win re-election. His own party was even split and nominated the more radical John C. Fremont, who called for outright abolition of slavery, while Northern Democrats who called for an immediate ceasefire, what a fucking what if that presents, who knows what peace would have actually looked like without Sherman's march to the sea or Grant's charge into Virginia against Lee. Which I guess brings me to the battle. Lincoln's greatest battle may have been the election, but if that is the case I am making, then the battle or capture of Atlanta has to be the most significant battle of the war. Foner notes, buoyed by Sherman's capture of Atlanta, Lincoln won a sweeping victory over McClellan. The battle for Atlanta itself was fought on July 22, 1864, and is oh so beautifully captured in the film Gone with the Wind, as the words Sherman literally blaze across the screen and his scorched earth policies blew through Atlanta, Georgia. In reality, the city would take some time to fall, and it would be the victim of a prolonged sea. The city finally fell in September, just as voting was on the horizon. After the battle, Lincoln received a telegram from Sherman himself saying Atlanta is ours and fairly won. Two months later, Sherman would begin his Moses-like march to the sea. The South had truly been invaded, the old stone wall pierced, Lincoln's victory in the election assured. I know I have once again disappointed the military fanatics, but I welcome you to come educate me on the ins and outs of every battle in the Civil War imaginable on the TGMH Facebook group. But how did Lincoln win the war? I mean, this is how we determine whether he was great or not. Moving back to Eric Foner's analysis of the Civil War and not just my own opinion, he notes, quote, Almost any comparison between Union and Confederacy seemed to favor the Union. And everyone seemed to get this. Even Rhett fucking Butler said to a rowdy bunch of eager Georgians lost in their cause, and blinded by their eagerness and emotions in Gone with the Wind, a movie I truly adore while acknowledging its many faults, saying, quote, There's not a single cannon factory in the whole South. The Yankees are better equipped than we. They've got factories, shipyards, coal mines, a fleet to bottle up our harbors and starve us to death. All we've got is cotton and slaves and arrogance. If you don't like that movie, then frankly, my dear listener, I don't give a damn. I love it, and again, you don't have to. Ironically, Rhett is accused by the idiotic Charles Hamilton of being a traitor to the cause. In reality, that is all the South had, a cause, and not a cause worth fighting for. Although this often fools my students of history, cotton cannonballs were just not a thing. Lincoln had it all. According to Foner, the population of the North surpassed 22 million people all free, whereas the South boasted a population of around 9 million people, 3.5 million of which were not fucking free at all. Of nearly 130 factories in the United States, the South was home to less than 20,000. The ratio of firearms was 32 to 1, textiles 17 to 1, pig iron 20 to 1, all in favor of the Union. And the wealth of the nation also resided, unsurprisingly, in the North, as it had since the day Hamilton made it that way. The South did produce the majority of the nation's cotton, but their agrarian traditions didn't seem to extend to, oh you know, food, another area where the North was dominant. One of Abe's greatest advantages was being able to move shit, as the North, the Union, was also home to 70% of the nation's 30,000 miles of railroad track. 
but I always argue that statistics reveal every bit as much as they conceal. Hell, the South held out for years. The war was bloody, not quick, not easy. And beyond that, in the early days of the war, the South just had outright better generals. All the Union seemed to have was every other advantage and Abe Lincoln. But as Foner notes, quote, Both sides were unprepared. In 1861, there was no national railroad gauge. Trains built for one line could not run on another. There was no national banking system, no tax system capable of raising the enormous funds needed to finance the war, and not even accurate maps of the South. So what was the plan? Lincoln accepted and eventually witnessed Scott's Great Snake, a cringy, creepy name for the Anaconda Plan. A plan to strangle the South into submission with a 3,500-mile-long naval blockade using only 90 fucking ships. Makes sense. For Lincoln, communication was his main weapon, and this is key to understanding Lincoln's greatness. Thanks to the massive amount of telegraph line that seemed to consistently parallel railroad development, Lincoln was able to maintain steady if not regular contact with the warfront, and he certainly did. During the course of the war, Lincoln used modern modes of communication to act as a true leader during the Civil War, relying heavily on Samuel Morris's telegraph, which was first successfully tested in 1844. Americans seemed slow to adopt this new, possibly intimidating technology, but Lincoln understood its importance, creating the U.S. Military Telegraph Corps in 1861. It was Lincoln's Secretary of War, Simon Cameron, who tasked his Assistant Secretary of War with overseeing the development of a telegraph corps. He turned to the man who headed up the railroad and telegraph operations in Pittsburgh at the time, great mind for another day, Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie drafted men from the Pennsylvania Railroad Company to join the Corps. Over the next year, civilians, not soldiers, went to work laying more than 15,000 miles of telegraph wire across battlefields and areas of actual and future combat. The department itself was eventually headed up by Anson Stagger, who would lead the department until 1866. He would work closely with David Strauss to manage the Corps during the war. The Corps itself was actually made up of only around 150 men who had to run telegraph lines on battlefields from Antietam to Gettysburg to Vicksburg as battles were actually happening. This allowed Lincoln to be in constant communication with front lines as battles were unfolding. He visited the telegraph office in the Capitol daily, which, by the way, was converted out of an old library in the War Department, and it was said that he would sleep on a cot in the telegraph office as major battles unfolded. Author Thomas Wheeler notes that Lincoln was a man that craved knowledge. He never feared new technology, but instead embraced it. That being said, Wheeler notes, quote, Lincoln sent barely more than one telegram a month in the first year of his presidency. But that changed as he grew increasingly frustrated with the war's, quote, bad case of the slows. Lincoln used the telegraph to wield great control of the war, even at times urging his generals to march against the enemy directly. For the first time since the days that kings and emperors led troops into battle themselves, a leader like Lincoln could act as a true commander-in-chief, issuing commands to his generals in, quote, real time, at least real time of the day. Turning to Wheeler again, he notes, quote, The telegraph was both his big ear to eavesdrop on what was going on in the field and his long arm for projecting his leadership now informed by newly gathered information. When Lincoln received news of Grant's capture at Vicksburg, he supposedly bought a round of beers for the telegraph operators, breaking every protocol imaginable. Lincoln used the telegraph to lead the nation through one of its darkest hours. By the end of the war, the telegraph was a staple of life. News of Lincoln's death, in fact, was also broken to the nation by his second Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, by telegraph. Another reason that Lincoln won the Civil War was because of, well, you know, Lincoln. Here I mean Lincoln the symbol. Walt Whitman once remarked to Lincoln's face that it was so awful ugly it became beautiful. 
It was as Ronald White Jr. noted, quote, When Lincoln spoke, audience forgot his appearance as they listened to his inspiring words. It is here that we can clearly see how Lincoln became a symbol. Like George Washington before him, he inspired those around him, he created bonds with those he led, and they were dutifully loyal and bound to him. Even as soldiers marched into D.C. in the midst of the uncertainty surrounding the fallout of Fort Sumter, Lincoln waved to his soldiers and White notes, quote, The gloom of the ten days following Fort Sumter disappeared. Lincoln would continue to serve as a symbol, a leader, always understanding the nature of the war, who should be in charge, and how to win. Like Washington in his own revolution, Lincoln led his could-be nation through his own new, yet strangely old, revolution himself. But what did winning mean? I guess that is less a question of what and more of who. What did winning the war mean for blacks, slaves, the United States? What did it mean for Lincoln? Well, for Lincoln, it meant a legacy unmatched and, of course, well, death. For the country, it meant reunification, rebuilding, and reconstruction. For the slaves, it meant freedom. But for blacks, it didn't necessarily mean equality. I don't really have time to go down each different avenue here, and I will actually get a chance to talk about some of these points later down the road. In the end, however, the country was glued back together just barely, and somewhat forcibly. After the war, the country entered a period of literal and metaphorical reconstruction. This, however, isn't really part of Abe's story, but Lincoln had a vision for the United States of America. A true is country, not an are. One entity united in hearts and minds. He hoped to welcome back the southern states into the Union once 10% of the population took an oath of allegiance. He put in motion the full abolition of slavery in the reunited states of America with the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that says, quote, "...neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction." In a speech he gave just four days before his death, he called for limited voting rights for blacks, which would eventually become a legal reality with the ratification of the 15th Amendment. The one in the middle, the 14th Amendment, it's fucking huge. Civil rights for all, single most important amendment, but to get into the reasons for that would take a saga in itself. I'm not sure what Lincoln's America would have meant for race relations in the South or the country as a whole. I don't really get to speculate on that, as we would never get to know. The war took a terrible toll on Lincoln's health and physical appearance. On April 15, 1865, Lincoln was shot in the head in Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. while watching Our American Cousin. In the end, it was the war, the lingering hate, and its foolish ideals that killed quite possibly America's greatest president. But is that really true? To get a fuller picture of Lincoln, we must take a look at his failings. You know, it's pretty fucking lame that this great mind's greatest failing might just be that he left America with a massive asshat of a leader after his death. Fucking Andy Johnson. I mean, I get the rationale. Johnson was a strategic choice, but a terrible choice in a potential successor. I wish, I really do wish that we had more time to dig into his massive shitstorm of a presidency, but that's not the story for today. Abe is. Short version, 1864. Lincoln chooses Tennessee Democrat Andrew Johnson as his running mate. They win, and Lincoln dies. We are left with Johnson, arguably America's worst president. He was a racist, he hated the rich, and worked well with no one. Luckily for Johnson, no one wanted to work with him. He did, however, give us a lot of firsts. The first override of a presidential veto, first impeachment, a true total shit show of a presidency. Bad choice in the long run. 
Grant came after Reconstruction started to resemble the very militant structure of the Civil War. Bayonet rule dominated the South, carpetbaggers, scalawags, and all that Reconstruction fuckery, and of course, tons of racism. A lot of that. Poll taxes, black coats, Jim Crow laws, literacy tests, Southerners and Northerners alike would do just about everything they could to limit black enfranchisement and equality after the Civil War, Lincoln's death, and Reconstruction came to a close. The South was worse, no doubt, but the North was more hypocritical. Reconstruction would fall into radical congressional hands until 1876 when a quote corrupt bargain was struck that ended military rule in the three states that remained in the limbo that exist after the Civil War. But in all actuality, all of this probably isn't Abe's greatest failing either. Johnson sucked, but that isn't Abe Lincoln's fault. Lincoln did lay the groundwork for new freedom. He turned the seeds of equality planted in the foundations of our nation into a new tree of liberty, equality, life, natural rights, and the pursuit of happiness for all men. Don't get me wrong, there's still a lot of work to be done after Lincoln's death. But even aside from being a little bit of a stereotypical racist of his day, Abe Lincoln really wasn't any friend to the Native American tribes of the American West with the passage of the Homestead Act of 1862 which would actually offer single women a greater deal of freedom than society typically warranted. It would, however, trample over Native American land rights to satiate the greed of American farmers and executive ambitions of westward expansion. Turning back to historian James N. McPherson, he remarks on the nature of the Civil War, quote, The Civil War started as one kind of conflict and ended as something quite different. He continues, With a less able man as president, the North might have lost the war or ended under the leadership of those who would have given its outcome a very different shape. In the end, Lincoln was a, quote, revolutionary statesman. But was he most able? certainly more than his predecessor, James Buchanan, and his immediate successor, Andrew Johnson. And he was even better than his competitor, George McClellan. But I guess it's complicated. So many factors go into this. So, oh, what the hell, let's figure this all out on the scale of greatness. First, the drink. I love bourbon. I didn't used to, but I really do now, especially. I like it on the rocks, I like it straight up, neat, whatever you want to say, I just like it. I really like Knob Creek, too. In terms of taste, I fucking love it. It's smooth as hell. It isn't as good as Angel's Envy or Buffalo Trace, but it's right up there. I have no problem having a glass with the neighbor, which always turns into two, three, or I don't know, four, because it's that good. I'm only giving it four points for taste, however, as I would consider it incredibly drinkable, but not quite as good as some others in the same range. Which... I guess is a compliment. In terms of price, well, it isn't bad for a good bourbon. Coming in at around $30 at most stores, including the gold standard Total Wine, it is cheaper than most bourbons at its level. And I would put it on level with Buffalo Trace, but Buffalo Trace is cheaper. Paying for a little bit of a name here, I'm going to give it five points for price. Even though I have said a couple of times now that I prefer Buffalo Trace to this, it is much harder to find, almost making Knob Creek a better, at least more returnable choice, if not just for accessibility. Affordable and tasty, I have bought it before, I will buy it again, I am never disappointed with Knob Creek. Five points as I get more and more sad as I see the bottle start to fade away. Knob Creek Straight Bourbon Whiskey leaves the show with a solid 14 out of 18 points and five crowns. And to celebrate, I'm going to have another shot. <clears throat> 
On to Lincoln. Hmm, this was a long one. It was a hard one. It was just a lot. I mean, Lincoln was great. Really fucking great. Worthy of by far the longest episode. In terms of leadership, basically he lost half his country, then reconquered it. I don't really like to blame him for the outbreak of the Civil War, but there is some reason behind that claim. He made all the hard calls, changed the game as needed, and fought for a better America and led the nation through one of its most challenging growing pains. Like Washington, I don't think any other president could have led us through this unique challenge, save only Abe Lincoln. Plus, he continued to strengthen the country while fighting the war, ever expanding and innovating his own nation. So I am awarding Abe Lincoln five points for leadership. Some iffy spots and choosing Andy Johnson was certainly a bad call. I will not sit here and rehash the episode. Civil War he won, slavery he abolished, he started what Jefferson said would take a thousand years and did it very quickly. He started the construction of a railroad that would shorten travel time across the nation from months to days. He set in motion a workable plan to rebuild the nation. His only unfinished accomplishment seemed to come from dying too soon, and that doesn't fucking count. So I am awarding Honest Abe five points for accomplishing greatness, and what's really amazing is he did it in such a short time. Although I will have to admit that secession is kind of a cost to Abe here. Just a little one, though. And on to entertainment. Like every other mind of this season, I never thought I would find myself so captivated by Abe Lincoln. I worried that like Churchill, the story had been too told. But it turns out there's always something new to learn about these great minds. I hope I did Abe Lincoln justice. I am sure it wasn't perfect, but I had a fucking great time doing it. Six points for entertaining me over the past two weeks of writing and somehow still managing to be surprised after all these years of teaching the Civil War and Abe Lincoln. Sitting at 16 points, will Abe find himself in the pantheon of six crowned greats, of which I don't know there are I, I don't know that there are any of those. Maybe he'll be the first. But that means on to the piece of shit curve. Lincoln once said, quote, If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. I cannot remember when I did not so think and feel. I know that Lincoln gets a lot of flack for being a stereotypical white elitist of his day, but I don't know if that holds up. Lincoln begot a new nation, a more free America. He probably didn't think whites and blacks as equal, but I get the feeling that eventually, if not during his lifetime as it stands, he would have come to see the error in his ways. But I speculate, and that is a fucking waste of time. His railroad and land policies displaced thousands of Native Americans and spurred wars after his death, all in part to construct the nation's first transcontinental railroad, an act he signed into law. He was a little bit of a hypocrite. He fought for certain liberties while stripping others away. He redefined the power of the federal government to the point that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court accused him of being on the path to totalitarianism. But meh, Tawny fucking sucked. Did Lincoln kind of cause a civil war? Uh, I don't know, I guess, but I don't really buy it. And beyond that, the treatment of POWs at the Union prison, Camp Douglas, under his leadership, led to the death of nearly 5,000 Americans. His aggressive push into the West at the cost of Indian freedoms and land certainly cost him a little, but he did so much good, and he could have done so much more. Sadly, we will never get to see what Lincoln would have looked like as a peacetime president. I don't know. I guess I can justify taking away one POS point from Honest Abe Lincoln. I hate to, but it does seem kind of fair. Unsurprisingly, Abe Lincoln, the great emancipator, leaves the show with a very high score of 15 points out of 18 and 5 crowns. I know that some will disagree on both ends, but I write the show, so, you know, meh. 
For more on Abraham Lincoln, I really enjoyed reading Michael Burlingame's 1997 book, The Inner World of Abraham Lincoln, and I have tried to, but not yet finished, the behemoth that is beautifully titled A. Lincoln, A Biography, by Ronald C. White Jr. And when it comes to the Civil War and Reconstruction era, and even Lincoln himself, or American history in general, I would suggest none other than Eric Foner. If you enjoy Drinks with Great Minds in History, then be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Twitter. Some people said the Instagram handle was hard to find, so I went ahead and changed the handle to Drinks with Great Minds underscore podcast. Check it out. Don't forget to join the DGMH Facebook group, where you can get a dose of DGMH daily and chat with all your favorite guests, Luke, Kelly, Cullen, Sherry, and of course, you can chat with me. Don't forget to leave the show a great, hopefully five-star review wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, and if you want to support the show and get access to even more great content, then visit the DGMH Patreon page. There, listeners can get access to bonus shots discussions, cut segments, and bonus questions from a twist of psych. Well, that's it. It was long. It was honest. It was Lincoln. Was he great? Fuck yeah. Was he flawed? Meh. He was human, but a damn good one. He made tough calls in a tough time. He reunited, rebuilt, and redefined the nation and continues to after his death. He is and was a symbol of American freedom and a damn good one at that. His revolution, like the Founders, is still unfinished. While he is incredibly representative of a classic great mind making questionable calls for the dread greater good, I truly believe that this great mind worked for the good of the greater population, ushering in a new era of equality and liberty. He birthed a nation, to quote the great mind himself, where every man has the right to be equal with every other. And on that note, I say, cheers.